Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. You know, the Apostle Paul, he spent a lot of time with Roman soldiers. Often against his will. Actually, most of the time it was against his will. He sailed on a ship to Rome, and according to Acts chapter 28 and Ephesians chapter 6 verse 20, probably during the time where he was writing this letter to the church in Ephesians, he was chained to Roman soldiers, possibly on his left and his right, and it was usually the case to make sure that specific prisoners did not escape. So you can imagine he's writing this letter and he's thinking about some things and he looks over at his soldiers, his accompanying soldiers on his left and right. And what does he see? Probably a breastplate. The breastplate was the largest piece of armor on a soldier. And when he looked at that breastplate, he probably thought of a few things. He thought perhaps of Isaiah chapter 59, which also speaks of a breastplate of righteousness. So mindful of the fact that this Messiah would come and provide such, in in a sense, armor pieces, spiritual armor, so too Paul, looking around, as he often does, takes metaphors from life, and then describes it and analogizes it to a physical reality. In many ways, when we think about this very specific piece of armor, we have to recall the fact that it was so large that its very purpose was to protect what? The torso. The most vital part, you might say, of a person's body. At the very least, for those of these classical times, they saw the, the organs that resided in this central part, the torso, the trunk of a body, contained areas of life that were so critical in protecting. And so we're going to look at this same armor, but from a spiritual perspective. And as Sue just read, and I'm going to read it again, Paul says, stand, therefore, having fastened on, and we spoke about it last week, the belt of truth, which was foundational to all the pieces of armor, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. I'd like to look at two aspects of this righteousness, this breastplate of righteousness. The first is called imputed righteousness. And I'll describe what that means coming soon. The second is infused righteousness. A little bit of background on the word righteousness. It's easy to think about righteousness the way that Martin Luther thought of righteousness prior to his gospel awakening. He was always so overwhelmed and almost condemned by that word righteousness, especially that phrase, the righteousness of God, because that word just seems so hard to live by. If you try to live by that word alone without any sense of who Jesus is or what he did, it would be an imposing word, a heavy word, a hard word. 
which is exactly how he approached it. Listen to Martin Luther's words when he describes this righteousness. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. See, for Martin Luther, without Christ, righteousness was a dirty word. It was a hard word. It was a condemning word. And it made God this angry, furious tyrant. Of late, I've been watching videos on YouTube of debates between atheists and Christians. It's just been something I've been enjoying doing, actually. And if you watch some of these debates, what you'll find is the the hopelessness of atheism. And the thing is, they often view God exactly how Martin Luther viewed him, angry. They, they just rage against this God of the Bible because they say he's so righteous. He's so angry. And therefore, you don't want to worship a God like that. See, it's not just atheists who are like that towards God. It's also the person who tries to abide by righteousness that sees God as this angry God and we are but cowering folk who have no hope before such a God. For Luther, righteousness is a heavy word before a holy God and very likely he would have agreed exactly with the psalmist when he's in Psalm 133. It says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. O Lord, who could stand? Every true Christian, at some point in their life, should be struck by a a, a verse like that to compare ourselves before a holy God. It should leave us haunted in a way. And it makes us recognize, it should at least, that all of our efforts, they come to naught. They, They don't allow us to actually experience joy. So now you might be thinking, but I'm not a bad person, actually. Actually, compared to the rest of the world, and especially as we watch the news today, you might think, I'm not as bad as that person, those people. I'm actually pretty good. Maybe you've been going to church your whole life, and you've been faithful to different things that have been going around. You've been faithful to what you would think of as obedience to God. But be forewarned that eventually you get to a place where you realize that your faithfulness is not enough on its own. That doing so-called good things for God still falls short. And so we can either fall into the idea of I'm much, much better off than that person over there or I'm not good enough next to that person over there. There's those two extremes, those two points of the scale that we're always trying to balance and we tend to go back and forth between the two. Now, Satan knows this and his primary attack is to always attack our weakest point. If you think you're good enough, he'll try to make you 
think more so you're better than that person or this person. If you feel as though you're not good enough, then he'll try to bring into your life or to say, look at those people. They're so much better than you. He knows your weakest point. And so we either struggle with a a sense of undeservedness of our love from God, or we think we're better off. There's always this push-pull. If we have ever felt accusation or condemnation, doubt, fear, discouragement, dismay, pride, judgmentalism, unforgiveness, bitterness, and we all have, then you have experienced flaming arrows towards your trunk, towards your torso, your spiritual torso, which really houses your will, your identity, who you are. And that's why we need the breastplate of righteousness. So that's the background. And let me describe then what are these two aspects of this righteousness that Paul says, strap it on, that protects you from all of that. The first is what theologians call imputed righteousness. It blocks the enemy's flaming arrows. It's imputed in that it is alien to us, outside of us. That's what imputed righteousness means. Imputed righteousness righteousness is someone else's righteousness imputed or transferred to us, given to us, accounted towards us, declared towards us. Listen to how Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's called imputed righteousness or righteousness from God, not a righteousness of my own that is imputed, transferred into my account. This is after, now if you know anything about Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 on, he describes I'm the Jew of the Jew. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I am taught by Gamaliel. He sort of gives this resume list of all the ways that he should claim righteousness on his own, by his own merit. Here are all the things I've done that are good. Here's what makes me special. I've worked really hard, better than anyone else. So he's gone through that great length, and then he gets to this place that says, it's actually not my righteousness that makes me righteous. I need an imputed righteousness. I need a transferred righteousness. The reason our righteousness is not enough is because we have to be perfectly righteous to stand before a perfectly righteous God. And no matter how hard we try to get to that level of righteousness, we never make it. And if you've ever actually tried to do that, you can see how sometimes even your own righteous deeds are still mixed and mingled with self-centeredness, self-glorification, a desire to make yourself better than others. No matter how hard we try, we can't get there. So we need God's imputed, declared righteousness on his terms, by his will, so that we know righteousness is solely apart from us and from God alone. Jerry Bridges tells the story, um, and I'm going to embellish it a bit. 
Imagine you're invited to dine with royalty, uh, the king and queen. If we had a king and queen, or if you were in England or different parts of the world where there is still royalty, but your job happens to be, your, your work is that you clean cow manure all day. And so, and you do it in the hot sun. And so when you do it, you wear really stinky, grimy clothing. You're invited to a king's feast with all these VIPs. And you get to the king's table. In order to come to that table, you should take a shower and you should change your clothing because you smell disgusting and your clothing smells disgusting and looks really bad. You need to wear clothing that is fitted for the occasion. Well, how about if you tried this? You don't take a shower, but you change your clothes and you go to that table. How will you be accepted? Remember, you've been cleaning cow manure in the hot sun all day. They will kick you right out. What if you actually skip the shower, but wear brand new clothing? They'll still kick you out. That still doesn't work either. You need to shower and bathe, and you need new clothing. You see, that's what we need. Far too often, Christians think that all you need is to be bathed, to be cleansed. Jesus died for my sins. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Absolutely true. And that's generally what we learn for most of our lives as Christians. We learn it. At the youngest of ages, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So I need to believe. I need to know that he cleanses me of my sins. I grew up like that. I grew up with half the gospel, half the good news. But the problem was, if you only have that, you are literally like that person working in the fields, in the cow manure fields, taking a shower, but putting on all your stinky clothing. And when you try to go before the king, he says, that's not acceptable. It's not good enough. And that's the thing is that our clothing that we bring, all of our stinky clothing is all of our works. If it's based on, here's God, here's all the things that I do. I'm, I'm cleaning at church, getting it ready. We think that's good enough. I'm going to different parts of the world. I'm even, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, surrendering my body to the flames. But if I have not love, the love that God bestows upon us solely by his will and power, I gain nothing. We need both. And if you don't have both, you can't be accepted. When Paul says in Ephesians 4, 24, he says, we need to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness but how do you even get to that place? Paul says we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. He means it is vital. This is a vital part of your life and of your defense against the enemy that you bear the full reality of Jesus Christ, not only dying for you, but living perfectly righteous for you. So most of us, when we think about the cross, we go all the way to Matthew 27 and 28 you know, or 26, 27. We go to the end of the gospel, Mark, Luke, John, and we want to go to the cross. We think that's the gospel is the cross. No, the gospel is when he was born, when he lived his life, when he fought Satan and did not sin, 
even though he was tempted. When he was going throughout his life, and yet without sin, he lived his life. That is the gospel as well. And we need that too. As much as we need the cross, we need his perfect life lived. Because that perfect life is what is transferred to us at the cross. It is credited, declared to us. We are not righteous in ourselves, but we're righteous in Christ. And the impact of that is tremendous. That truth will protect your heart and your conscience and your will against Satan's schemes. Nothing will defend you more as a Christian than to know with assurance that Jesus' perfect life lived, his atoning death, his resurrection, his glorification gives you now confidence to enter into the king's presence, to feast and dine with him. So what difference does this make practically? What does that look like then, practically? Let me ask you, have you ever struggled with meaning or identity? Everyone struggles with that. If you take on a job or a career, what happens as you work along in that job or career? Eventually, you start asking the question, what am I doing here? This isn't giving me the meaning I thought it would. You know, we we take so much of our lives trying to educate ourselves and work hard to get to at that certain point. And let's say, not we, we don't always achieve where we want to go, but let's say you even do. There's a certain point you, you're always going to ask a question, I'm not satisfied. So we want to move on to another department, another title, another path, because that changes a little bit of the feeling, but the feeling always comes back. What am I doing here? Why am I here? Well, that's a question of identity. We're trying to gain meaning and purpose and identity in something other than the one who gives it, a job, a career. And when you're pursuing that, you're actually struggling with righteousness. This sense that I am righteous not by what I do, but because it's an alien outside righteousness transferred to me. If you ever struggle with what's the purpose of this marriage? Or you're at home, if you're a mom and you're saying, or you're homeschooling, or whatever, or you're teaching, you're living life and you're saying, what, what, what's my life about? Well, that's a question of identity. And trust me, in those identity moments, those are Satan's arrows coming hard at you. And they're trying to pierce through and say, actually, you should ask those questions. You're a nobody. You thought you were somebody when you were young. You're working so hard and you, look, what did you, why'd you go to college? Why'd you go to that college? Why did you have that job? You had that job your life and now look, you've given it up. And what does your life amount to now? Nothing. Those doubts, accusations, condemnations, those are all righteousness issues. And if you do not have the imputed righteousness of Christ, you are susceptible to buying into those deceptions. Parents, so many of you are living for your children. And you labor and your actions and sacrifices are, as uh, Bob the Tomato would say, for the kids. It's for the kids. I mean, I feel as though so many parents live that way. It's for the kids. Even at the cost of saying, well, husband, wife, I actually don't care about you. And I can't wait to get a divorce from you, but I'm going to stay together for the kids. My friend, that is a problem of righteousness because you've determined your worth and value now in your children. 
And guess what? Every one of those times that you place hope in something other than Christ, you will always be disappointed with life, with a career, with a relationship, with a friendship, with a marriage, with a parent, with a child, with a brother, with a sister. It will be endless. You will never be satisfied in your heart. And we can have huge highs. You can win all sorts of tournaments if you're an athlete and be the best at it. But eventually, even if you win the gold medal at the Olympics, that gold medal ends up being but a piece of hardware that you sits in the corner of a room. Satan knows your weaknesses and he will hammer you with thoughts and questions and frustrations and anxieties all the time. And the one foundational question he will always ask you is the same question he asked Eve. Did God really say, does God really promise? Do you think God really makes a difference for you? Does God actually impact your life? Does he even care about your relationships? Does No, don't do that. Just work on your own. He, you don't need him. That is foundationally Satan's ultimate attack against you. So the answer to that is imputed righteousness. I remember what Christ has done. I remember that he lived a perfect life. I remember that that righteousness has now clothed me anew with his righteousness. I don't need to be the best at this. I don't need to try to gain worth and value by people, by a job, by a career, by an athletic achievement, by anything in this world. All I need is Christ. It's that that is imputed righteousness that protects us, the breastplate of righteousness. The second aspect of the breastplate of righteousness that we need is called infused righteousness. And this theologians use as a practical outworking of imputed righteousness. Now, let me try to help you to understand infused righteousness. Think about a blood transfusion. When someone's blood, and let's assume that the blood types match, there's, there's no you know, internal medical rejection, biological rejection of that blood. Let's just assume everything matches. And someone's blood enters your bloodstream because you need a blood transfusion to save your life. Then there's nothing in your body that says, you know what, this is my body. Your blood doesn't say, this is my body. And you, blood, you stay on your side, I'm stay on my side, and we're just going to live in this body in separate corners. That's not how it works, right? When blood transfuses into, and it's everything is, you know, working well, there's a, you know, the blood becomes one blood. It actually transfers over so that you actually have new blood and it's all mixed and mingled and together. That blood from the outside is now your blood on the inside. That's what infused righteousness is. When Christ's righteousness is imputed and transferred to your account, now it's your righteousness, and that's how you live now. That's how it, it changes the way you live. Now, there's a big difference. I'm not saying that, therefore, it's now your work. See, that goes back and leaves behind imputed righteousness. But if it is really true that righteousness has been transferred, Christ, has his righteousness, his works have been transferred to you, then now it becomes a part of you, and it impacts the way you live. You desire to follow Jesus. You want to serve him. Christians 
want to follow Jesus. We sang a song that said, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. That happens because of infused righteousness. When righteousness comes into our hearts, we change. Listen to Galatians 2.20. We all, many of us know this verse. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Imputed righteousness right there, right? Here's infused righteousness. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see how it works? Imputed righteousness on the first part. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Infused righteousness. And the life I now live in light of the imputed righteousness, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The, the fuel, the motivation of now saying, I'm going to change, is imputed righteousness grounds it, And then motivation is, who loved me and gave himself for me, I'm going to change. I'm going to live differently. I want to live differently. So for the Christian, obedience is not, oh, this is hard. This is laborious. I'm not saying it's not hard work sometimes to follow Christ. But just like a husband on the wedding day, if that wife says, bride, new bride says, can you get a drink of water for me? He's not going to say, oh, I got to walk down to the kitchen and go get it. I can't believe it. Oh, so hard. There's, he will jump and leap for joy. He will be leaping and skipping to get water. You know what I mean? There's out of the outflow of a heart change comes a desire to work, even though it's still work, even though there's still labor. Hymn writer William Cowper, uh, Cooper describes this heart so well in a poem. Listen to what he says. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. I love that last part. Changes a slave into a child and duty into a choice. That is beautiful. It's exactly what happens to someone who has infused righteousness. Satan is a great liar and accuser. He knows that if he can cause us to forget imputed righteousness, we won't live as someone with infused righteousness. If he can get us there to doubt, fear, be discouraged, be proud over our identity, then he keeps us from living righteously. Think of the times you struggle with discouragement. and You've been rejected by some institution, by a person, Uh, by a friend even, a family member, and you're struggling perhaps with inadequacy at work, at home, as a mom, as a father, as a friend. And uh, you go down a really dark road in those instances. The instance, uh, the instance of comparison, envy. Whenever you're comparing yourself to any person, you know you've lost righteousness. Not, you've lost the sight of righteousness, Christ's righteousness over you. Because in Christ, you are a child of the greatest, most powerful person in the universe. And there is never, ever a reason why that person should ever doubt or fear or feel inadequate. But because it's so easy to succumb to the enemy's schemes, perhaps it's because we haven't lifted and put on the breastplate of righteousness. We've forgotten 
the price that was paid to make this possible. And so this righteousness and new identity has not captivated our hearts. If we're judging someone else, if we're not willing to be gracious, and you might say, how many times do I need to be gracious? How many times do I need to forgive? Seven times? No, 70 times seven. In other words, can't, there's no limit because that's how God is towards us. How many times should we show grace? If we refuse to show grace, we have forgotten the righteousness of Christ because Jesus gave his life. We cannot be like the, par- uh, the parable, the unmerciful servant. Pay me what you owe. You owe me $10,000, which is a lot of money, but you've been forgiven $10 billion. We've forgotten righteousness. The devil is hard at work trying to convince you to put down the breastplate of righteousness. What's the answer? Put it on. Pick it up. Wear it. Delight in it. And you will be protected. No arrow of Satan can pierce you. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. You are free of your own and others and Satan's attempt to accuse you, to cause you to think that you are not good enough. If you're tired or weary in following Christ, it's because you have forgotten the breastplate of righteousness. That is the cause of our spiritual weariness. We've forgotten the righteousness. And the more you hold this breastplate close to you, strap it on, tie it on, do everything you can, the more your conscience, your heart, and your will will be protected. Let me close with this quote. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon says this, you will not find on this side heaven a holier people than those who receive into their hearts the doctrine of Christ's righteousness. When the believer says, I live on Christ alone, I rest on him solely for salvation. I believe that however unworthy, I'm still saved in Jesus. Then there rises up as a motive of gratitude this thought, shall I not live to Christ? Shall I not love him and serve him, seeing that I am saved by his merits? If you want to see change, you have to receive the righteousness of Christ. If you're having trouble spending time in God's word, trusting him, showing mercy to others and kindness and grace to others, it's because we are not digging deep into the well of Christ's righteousness. If we're ever in fear and doubt or envy and despair, it's because we're not strapping on the breastplate of righteousness. May imputed righteousness and infused righteousness spur you on to love God and to love others. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you. We thank you that we have our hope, our greatest hope in Jesus. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We thank you for the righteousness that is not our own. It has been credited to us by Jesus, God the Son, condescending, becoming like us, even unto death, death on a cross, living a perfect life so that we could be set free, so that we could be declared and counted righteous in Christ. You are our hope, Lord Jesus. You are the one by which we have any possible means by which we can move and continue and press on in this world that no matter what storms might come our way, that you are faithful and just to 
secure us. We who were once slaves are now children. May our, may our duty now be our delight. We thank you. We worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name.